1 Peter chapter 2. The title of today's sermon is Stumbling Block or Savior. We're going to be in 1 Peter chapter 2, reading verses 4 through 8. If you have it, go ahead and stand with us as we read God's word. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 through 8. This is the word of the living God. As you come to him, a living stone, rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe. But for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, they stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we're here before you, Lord, with grateful hearts, grateful that we can gather, grateful that we have your word. We pray that you received our offering of praise this morning as a sweet aroma before your throne today. We pray that now as we turn our attention to hear from you, that you would give us ears to hear, eyes to see, a heart to receive, beautiful, wonderful things from your word. I pray that the word would be made alive to us today as it is, that we would cherish it, that we would love what we see, that it would cause us to rejoice, and I pray that we would Take it home and apply it to our lives, however that needs to happen. I pray that this, what we're about to do, would be for the glory of Christ. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. We're in our study, returning to our study in 1 Peter. Faithful sojourners, walking worthy in a wayward world. As we read this text this morning, uh, I want to point out to you something. There's a very helpful Bible study tip that will often give you a good idea of what an author is talking about. So we don't want to just read the Bible and just be able to say we checked it off, we can check it off our list now. We want to come to the text and come away with some sort of understanding, whether it be here as we're gathered together or at home whenever you're reading the word on your own in your personal devotional time. And so one of the things that you can do is look for words that are used frequently in a given passage. So for example, here we will see a word that was repeated eight different times and 
Repetition in the Bible is a way of emphasizing a theme or a concept or a subject. When you see a word being repeated often in a section of Scripture, quite often that is telling you what the main idea of the passage is, or at least what is this person focused on. In our case today, we see Peter demonstrating that for us as he repeats a word, or at least a variation of a word, eight different times. And this word appears in every single one of the verses we just read, and that is stone. It's the Greek word lithos. He writes stone, living stone, cornerstone, a rock of offense. Peter is dealing with two separate groups of people and their relationship with this living stone. We see the words repeated a lot because he's telling us this is what I'm dealing with. And then now we want to see, okay, what do we need to know about this stone? And so he teaches us about the stone and then two groups of people and their particular relationship to this stone. Just for the sake of clarity, and it'll become evident as we work through the text, but obviously the living stone being referred to is Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. And the two groups of people are those who believe in Christ and those who don't. We need to understand something this morning. Jesus Christ is not a neutral historical figure who people are indifferent towards. Some people can take him and leave him, take him or leave him. Some people don't really have an opinion of Jesus. You are either in Christ or you hate Christ. He is the most polarizing person to ever walk the face of the planet. After all, he told us himself that he came to divide. And let's understand, even the, even the apostles that walked with him, the disciples, even they would hear some of Jesus' teachings and say, this is a hard saying. Who can accept, who can receive what you're telling us, Jesus? And so it is today, isn't it? We read the words of Jesus and say, this is a hard saying. Who can understand this? Who can receive this? But we dare not shrink away from the words of our Lord. Luke 12, 51, he said, Jesus, in red letters, do you think that I have come to give peace on earth? No, I tell you, but rather division." Hold on a second, we sing the song, Peace on Earth and Mercy Mild. Isn't that about Jesus? Isn't he bringing peace to the earth? Well, yes, in a sense, and in another very real sense, he's bringing division. Because you are either in Christ or you're not. You're either dead in your sin and trespasses or you are alive in Christ. You are either submitting to Christ or you are in rebellion against Him. Your sins have either been paid for in Christ or you are storing up for yourself wrath. You either are coming to this living stone or you are stumbling over Him. 
which of these two groups you belong to has eternal, profound significance. Jesus is not a neutral person. He's a polarizing figure, and he has divided all of human history now into these two groups. We're going to first look at Christ the living stone, our first major heading today, Christ the living stone. This terminology once again finds its roots in the Old Testament. That's no surprise because Peter has often been referring to the Old Testament, hasn't he? He's been alluding to the Old Testament all throughout this text already. But in referring to this living stone, he's bringing in a few messianic texts. Namely, in verse 7, he's quoting Psalm 118.22, and it reads, The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. In verse 6, he's quoting Isaiah 28.16, Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am the one who has laid as a foundation in Zion, a stone, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone of a sure foundation. And then in verse 8, he quotes Isaiah chapter 8, verses 14 and 15. It says, He will become a sanctuary and a stone of offense and a rock of stumbling to both houses of Israel, a trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. Do we think of Jesus in these terms this, these days? That Jesus is going to be a stone of offense and a rock of stumbling? That, he, that he's going to trap and snare the inhabitants of Jerusalem? Many, God says, shall stumble on it. They shall fall and be broken. They shall be snared and taken. That is God himself speaking in the Old Testament. Well, that's the Old Testament God, right? There's a new God in the New Testament, and it's Jesus. And we serve Jesus now, not the God of the Old Testament. We know that that is horrendously wrong, right? Deuteronomy in the Shema, the Israelites were told to pray, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, God is one. God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit, eternally existing in one person, co-equal and co-substantial. This is the Holy Trinity. In the Old Testament, Christ is not revealed directly, but he is prophesied and spoken of. Obviously, in these messianic texts, he's prophesied as this coming one who's going to take the sins of his people away, but then also... Those who would have their sins instead of Christ will stumble over him. But it's the same God in the Old Testament and the New Testament. God is one. Moreover, Peter is quoting Scripture. Peter is himself is saying, here's what the Bible says about Jesus. Folks, we would do well to copy that model and understand what the whole counsel of God says. Not just the New Testament. Jesus is proclaimed even in the Old Testament. Though it be 
indirectly. As a matter of fact, what do you think the Bible, what Bible was preached from in Acts when they were preaching? They didn't have a MacArthur study Bible. They had the Old Testament. And you know what they were doing? They were preaching Christ. This is exactly what Peter was doing in Acts chapter 4, verse 11, when he says, This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. The stone is Jesus. He is the chosen stone. He is precious to the Father, unfathomably valuable. He is the one of whom the Father proclaimed from heaven at his baptism, this is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. But as we look at our second title, it's the first group of people, those who reject him. Though he is chosen of the Father, though he is precious and infinitely valuable, he was rejected by the builders, as Peter proclaimed in Acts 4. The Father, the God who created the heavens and the earth, the God from Genesis 1 who looked at his creation and said, it is good, looks at his son and says, this is my chosen precious stone that I am laying in Zion. And the builders said, no. God himself ascribed value and honor and glory to his son. And the builders rejected him as they were constructing their own social, religious, and spiritual temples. It is an image of builders picking up a stone and throwing it to the side as unusable, as though they were outside of a temple constructing its walls and saying, how about this stone? No, that one's not fit for this building. And not only is it not used in a different part of the building, maybe one that wouldn't be seen, but it's entirely cast away and thrown away. This is what it means by rejected. So it's not that they were part, uh, neutral towards this stone. You understand. They were adamantly against this stone. The Jewish people rejected the stone by crucifying Christ. This is how they displayed the builders who rejected the stone. What Peter is saying is in their crucifying of Christ, they rejected the cornerstone. However, God displayed that this is his chosen and precious cornerstone by resurrecting him from the dead. Verse 7, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Verse 4. As you come to him, a living stone. He is the living stone. He is living because of his resurrection. He tasted death once, never to taste it again. So where the builders were rejecting this stone and thinking that they had won victory, God was still accomplishing his purpose, wasn't he? In the rejection of the stone, what it means practically is that they did not believe that he is the Messiah. They did not believe that he is the Christ 
the Son of the living God. They did not believe that He was the Lamb who had come to take the sins of His people away. They did not believe that He was the coming one, that He was who they've been preparing for and praying for. They couldn't believe that it would be someone like Him. He was from Nazareth, from a nowhere kind of place. In the prophecy of the suffering servant, it says that he had no beauty that we would regard him. And the religious elite of that time said, this, this guy? I don't think so. Here God was laying his cornerstone in Zion, and the builders said, no, that's not good enough. He wasn't the elite political leader that they wanted, so they rejected him in their unbelief, and they crucified him. Verse 8 again tells us that this is what they were destined to do. A stone of stumbling, a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. Isn't that a shocking statement to read? They were destined to stumble They were destined to reject Christ. How can something like this be said? This was to fulfill the prophecy from Psalm 118. Just the same way that God was prophesying that he was laying a stone, he was also prophesying that this stone would be rejected. Do you see how even in people's unbelief, they still fulfill God's plan? God is sovereign over every single last molecule in the universe. Nothing ever could possibly thwart God's plans. As a matter of fact, when man has thought that he was thwarting God's plans, when Satan thought that he was thwarting God's plans, it was actually God all along. He was using it. We learned that early on in Genesis. What you meant for evil, God meant it for good. God didn't here predestine their hatred for Christ. They already would hate Christ. They already would because of their sinful hearts. No, what God did is that he sovereignly put these particular sinners, these particular sinful people in place on the timeline of human history so that they would commit the sin that their own self-righteous hearts would lead them to commit. It's as though God is just moving pieces on the chessboard all throughout human history. Namely, what the sin that their hearts would want to commit at this time would be to kill an innocent man. Do we understand the hatred that they had for Jesus. This is why I say that he's the most polarizing person in history. They didn't just dislike him. They didn't just think that he was not the greatest teacher. They had a profound burning hatred against him, so much so that they crucified him, they murdered him, an innocent man, in the most detestable way possible a Roman cross. They put him up for open humiliation. 
This was not an honorable way to go. This was humiliation. This is how the lowest scum of the earth would die. And that was our Savior. That was Jesus on that cross. Being humiliated and openly shamed and openly mocked because they hated him. Their punishment is well earned. They committed their sin. They will pay appropriately under God's holy fury. And this is what is meant in saying that he's a rock of offense in verse 8. He's a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. Jesus explains this a little bit for us in Matthew chapter 21, verse 44. He just quoted Psalm 118 in that passage. And then he says, And the one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. In other words, they stumble over Christ in their rejecting him in unbelief. And then the stone falls upon them in judgment. Eternal judgment. The stone, the living stone, the cornerstone, the chosen and precious stone isn't just rejected by the Jewish elites of this time, is he? But now we see him rejected everywhere. Openly, mockingly rejected. Look at verse 4. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men. Not just religious leaders. Not just the Jewish religious leaders of the time who crucified him. But men. He's rejected by men today. Every single person who does not believe in Jesus Christ stumbles over him. And the stone falls upon him in eternal judgment. Paul speaks of this in his letter to the Corinthians. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 18 and then 22 and 24. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. A stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. You know what the word folly means? It's where we get, the Greek word is where we get our English word moron from. Moronic. They look at this idea of this man dying on a cross and they think, that's moronic. That is foolish. That is idiotic. That is ridiculous. That is an absurd thing. You put your faith, you based your whole life on a book, on a man who died on a cross shamefully? What a fool you are. It's the stumbling block that Christ is. Is that not our culture today? We're in the middle of Pride Month. One of the most dangerous sins to commit, pride. 
We celebrate being prideful. You know what's happening there? Is people are thumbing their nose at God. Saying that stuff is foolish. You believe that archaic book? It was written by men after all. It was written hundreds and thousands of years ago. You don't have any idea if that's actually true. What a fool you are for believing in Jesus. What a fool you are for thinking that that stuff is true. We'll have our pride. We'll have our sexual debasement. You know what's happening right now is our whole country is going like this. Companies left and right bowing the knee to the God of sexual immorality. Companies, they have no business. Cookie companies, soap companies, they have nothing to do with any of these things are bowing the knee to this God thinking of Jesus as a fool. Thinking of this message of the cross as moronic. Get that stuff out of here. Just like the people of old who would hear the message of the prophets and say, don't tell us anymore of this Holy One of Israel. Prophesied to us smooth things. Tell us lies. Give us that sugar-coated stuff. Isn't it tragic to see what has become and what is becoming of this world. The same way that we see the metaphor of the builders throwing away a stone in their construction of the temple, we see that those who reject Christ throw away this notion of a man dying on a cross for their sins as foolishness. I didn't ask him to die for me anyway. I don't need him to die for me. I'm not that sinful. There are people who are worse than me. He can die for them. These are things that people say. He's not just someone that they choose not to believe in in the neutral sense. But he is an out, it is an outright blatant rejection of the living stone that is precious in the eyes of God. Paul goes on to say in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, 14, The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God for they are folly to him. They're moronic to him. And he's not able to understand them because they're spiritually discerned. These things are spiritually discerned and these people are spiritually dead. Have you considered the cross of Christ? Christ himself as nothing more than foolishness. A stone to be rejected whether you're listening to this here in the sanctuary or on the podcast at a later time, is that you this morning? If so, I bid you this morning to come to him, our third category or our third heading. Those who come to him. Paul, Peter writes, verse 4, as you come to him. To come to Christ is to abandon self. It is to answer the call of follow me that issues from the mouth of Jesus through the pages of Scripture. To come to Christ is to realize and recognize and confess that you are weary and heavy laden. 
To come to Christ is to recognize that which your soul thirsts and longs for is found in Him and not in this world. To come to Christ is to be in agreement with the Father regarding the preciousness of this stone. Indeed, to come to Christ is to believe in Him. Like Christ, the living stone, we too, those of us who have come to Him, who have believed in Him, are now likened to living stones. He says, as you come to Him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house. We are like li- likened to living stones in the sense that we too have been given life by God in our spiritual resurrection from our deadness and sin and praise God for that. We've been given spiritual life now and one day we too will receive the bodily resurrection from the dead. God has done this for a profound purpose. Salvation is not an end in and of itself. Look at what he says. Like living stones are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices. So let's deal with these individually. A spiritual house, what does that mean? The word house is used a few different ways throughout Scripture. It can mean house, as in a physical house. It can also mean a household, as in your family. But in the Old Testament, we find what he's probably alluding to here is he's talking about the temple of God. In Matthew 21, Jesus speaking, Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who sold and bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he told them, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. Jesus quotes Isaiah 56, 13 here, as he's in the temple. And as we saw in the passage, he was applying it directly and immediately to the temple. So this is the temple that, that Peter is writing to here. He's in, in, in a spiritual house. He's calling us a spiritual temple, the house of God, where his spirit would reside. See, in the Old Testament, they didn't have access directly to God. The temple, the tabernacle, the most holy place was a symbol of the presence of God. We know that God does not dwell in buildings. We know that God could never be contained to a temple, nor does he commission the building of a temple for his spirit to live in anymore. It's not a house in the sense that you can send mail to God at 777 Temple Avenue. Instead, it is symbolic. It's a a shadow of a greater reality. I wonder if someone's going to try to send a letter there. That's why we no longer require temple worship in our day and age. Why? 
Why, when the temple was destroyed in AD 70, was it not rebuilt? Because now we are the spiritual house. We, the believers, the people of God, the household of God, we collectively are the dwelling place of the Lord. Are you kidding me? We no longer are needing to build a temple for the Lord. We are the temple of the Lord. When Christ bore our sins and took on our wrath on the cross, the veil in the temple was torn in two. In case you don't know what that was referring to, the veil was outside of the most holy place, the Holy of Holies. The Holy of Holies was where the Spirit of God would would meet with the high priest once a year during the Day of Atonement. Whenever the high priest would bring in and make atonement for the people, the veil was indicative of the separation between God and man. But when Jesus became our sacrifice, The veil was torn to signify that now we would have access to God the Father through Jesus Christ. The priests were no longer the mediator between God and man, but now Christ is the one mediator between God and man. And we are now being built up in Him into a suitable dwelling place for the Spirit of God. This is just Absolutely incredible to think of the Spirit of God dwelling in us and among us. 1 Corinthians 3.16 Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's Spirit dwells in you? What a profound privilege. Solomon was so privileged to build the temple for the living God but we have the greater privilege to be the temple of the living God, to have the Spirit of God dwelling within us. Not only that, but we also do act as a priesthood, a holy priesthood. Back in the Old Testament, there there was the tribe of Levi. When Israel was to come into the Promised Land, each of the 12 tribes of Israel was to be given an allotment of land. It was their inheritance in the promised land for each of the tw- tribes of Israel. But you know what tribe didn't get any land? It was the tribe of Levi. But why? Why did God treat them that way? Why didn't he give them any land? Why didn't they get an inheritance along with everyone else? Well, let's see what God says. Deuteronomy 18, 1 and 2. The Levitical priests, all the tribe of Levi, shall have no portion or inheritance with Israel. They shall eat the Lord's food offerings as their inheritance. They shall have no inheritance among their brothers. The Lord is their inheritance. As he promised them. God chose the tribe of Levi to be the tribe from which He would appoint priests. And God himself would be their inheritance. Priests had access to the Holy of Holies. They served God as ministers. They delivered the truth of God's word. They were chosen by God. They were appointed by God. They were sanctified before and unto God. So in saying that we are a holy 
priesthood, it's, it's not in the sense that we offer animal sacrifices on behalf of the people to God, but that God is our portion, that we have access to the Father through Christ, and we offer spiritual sacrifices to God that are acceptable to Him. Spiritual sacrifices. He says to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. As it pertains to offering spiritual sacrifices to God, unbelievers believe that the temple of their own construction, the temple within which they have rejected the cornerstone, is suitable for the offering of sacrifices to God as as their own efforts, their own materials, and their own plans are honoring to God. However, how God has chosen to be worshipped is through His own Son. Thus, He is the, the one who is building the spiritual temple that is built upon Christ. They reject the stone, but God has chosen this stone, and it is most precious to Him and all of us as believers in line with the Father, say, yes, he is chosen and precious. And it is only through Christ that we offer sacrifices to God that he finds acceptable. It is only through Christ that we are able to worship God in a manner pleasing to him. Whether this is foreign to your ears or not, yes, there is worship that is not pleasing to God. There is a way to worship God that is not pleasing to Him. We saw it with the priests. They were worshiping by bringing fire to the altar. God struck them down, saying that they they were offering strange fire, unauthorized fire. In other words, they were not worshiping in the manner in which God has chosen to be worshiped. Well, now we find in in John chapter 4 that Jesus tells us that true worshipers worship in what? Spirit and truth. By the Spirit, through Christ, who is the truth. We worship in spirit and in truth. There is a way that God has designed for us to worship Him that would be pleasing to him, and it's through Christ. But what does this mean specifically? I mean, spiritual sacrifices sound so vague and ambiguous. There's a few examples throughout Scripture. One of them would be complete surrender to God. That is spiritual sacrifice. Romans 12.1, you know this verse. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a what? A living sacrifice. What does Paul say? Holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. To respond to the mercy of God by giving yourself entirely to God is a spiritual sacrifice that you offer to him. Praise and worship. Hebrews 13, 15. Through him then, talking about Jesus, through him then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is, the fruit of lips that acknowledge His name. 
we are prone in our sinful pride to want and hear our see, I'm sorry, to want to hear and sing our own praises or to worship the things of this world. But we offer spiritual sacrifices when all of our most heartfelt, our deepest praise and worship goes only to the Lord. How about giving sacrificially and generously? Philippians 4.18, I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts that you sent. A fragrant offering, a sacrifice, acceptable and pleasing to God. Hebrews 13.16, do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. It is not as though God needs your money, for all the gold and silver is his. But when we part with our money in in giving and we share our resources, we're offering spiritual sacrifices that are acceptable to God through Christ. How about good works? Hebrews 13, 16 that I just quoted. He says, do not neglect to do good, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. Good works, this is probably the most succinct way to communicate spiritual sacrifices. These can be great or small. Everything from giving a glass of cold water in the name of Jesus to losing your life on the mission field. That which is done in the name of and unto the glory of the Lord is a spiritual sacrifice. Prayer, Revelation 8, 3 through 4. Another angel came and stood at the altar with a golden, golden censer, and he was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all of the saints on the golden altar before the throne. Our prayers, when we pray in line with God's will, when we pray for others, when we pray for God to rid us of sin, we are displaying our utter dependence on the Lord as we offer up spiritual sacrifices to him. But an important distinction that needs to be made here at the end of this little three-part list is that all of these things would be for naught if not for Christ. Peter writes that all of this is through Jesus Christ. We're only being built up into a dwelling place for God because of Christ. We're only a a holy priesthood because of Christ. We offer spiritual sacrifices that are acceptable and pleasing to God because we are doing them through Christ Jesus. And it's only in coming to Him, in believing in Him, in the abandoning of our sins in repentance and placing total faith in Him that we are granted these unthinkable benefits. Or as Peter writes it in verse 7, So the honor is for you who believe. Though the living stone is the one the builders rejected, the one rejected by man, we will not be put to shame in coming to him because this is God's chosen means by which men must be saved. In fact, that's what Peter says after he quotes the verse from Psalm 118. Back in Acts chapter 4, there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. 
Whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Verse 6. What a terrible day it would be to stand in front of God Almighty with the books open, with your life under intense, detailed scrutiny, every word you've ever spoken reviewed, every act you ever engaged in under inspection, to walk away ashamed because you did not put your trust in Christ Jesus. For those of us who have, we know that the opposite will be true. We will not be put to shame. We will not be let down. We will not be disappointed. We will not find out that it was all a clever ruse to build organizations called churches. We will finally and truly be saved from the effects and stain of sin as we spend the rest of eternity in the presence of the chosen, precious, living stone Christ Jesus. Let's stand. Those who come to Christ receive honor, eternal life, and eternal security. Those who do not come to Christ receive dishonor and judgment. Why? Because Christ is the cornerstone of the spiritual temple that God is building for his spirit to dwell in. Do not reject this living stone, but come to him that you too might be built up into a spiritual house to be a part of this holy priesthood and to offer spiritual sacrifices that are acceptable to God along with the rest of us. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for sovereignly ordaining all things and that you have sovereignly ordained this to mean be the means by which men are saved. Lord, we pray for the salvation of souls. For anybody who could be hearing this that doesn't know you, that you would stir in them and drag them into your kingdom. Draw men to yourself, Lord. And I pray for those of us who do know you, that we would grow in our appreciation of just how precious this living stone is. Please go with us and take us. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.